0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, what is the unfinished business that Theresa May leaves for the next Prime Minister? Plus, why everyone is fascist or Nazi these days? And last, who was Alma Mahler, the woman who entranced some of the most creative men in 20th century Europe? First, as Theresa May hands over the keys to Downing Street, what burning injustices will she also hand over to her successor? I write in this week's cover piece that there's nothing funny about this question. There is a series of hard decisions on domestic crises that the May government has put off for three years. From social care to housing to energy, HS2 and rising crime rates, the real question for the Tory leadership contenders isn't who has the balls to deliver Brexit, but who has the strength of character to sift through that scary intray. To understand just how serious the situation is, as well as who, if anyone, might solve those problems, I'm joined by housing expert Alex Morton from the Centre for Policy Studies, who used to work in the Number 10 Policy Unit, as well as Hugh Pym, Health Editor for the BBC. So Alex, you've worked in Number 10 on domestic policy. You know how hard it is to get domestic policy out. Am I being unfair to Theresa May in my piece by saying that a nuclear winter has descended upon policy under her premiership?
1: I think a little bit harsh, but only a little bit, and in the sense of it's hard to see, you know, in the last three years, really what's come through as a, a big policy push. And one of the things that the CPS we've been trying to do is come up with some big, exciting ideas, because, you know, if you watch, for example, the leadership candidates' videos, they often talk as if they, they're in opposition. So they're saying oh, there are all these problems that need to be fixed around knife crime, around housing, around whatever – And that's the kind of language you usually hear from a a party that's in opposition saying they've created all these problems, but we've got the ideas to fix them. And it's weird to watch conservative candidates saying, rather than saying we're going to build on the last three years the record of this government, they're coming from it as if there are these big problems that we need to fix and I'm the man
2: uh, or woman to do it.
0: Hugh, are you getting frustrated having not had very much domestic policy to write about over the past few years?
2: Well, there's an element of that in the last few weeks because of what's been going on at uh, national level in Downing Street and other events and so on. I mean, there's been quite a lot to uh, talk about since Simon Stevens took over at the NHS in England in 2014. You've got the fifth anniversary of his five-year forward view. You've now got a ten-year long-term plan. So there are quite a lot of big-picture things which were certainly there until recently. But a couple of examples of where the doldrums in Whitehall... Has really affected domestic policy making. The social care green paper promised in 2017, one of the really important issues of our times. How, as a society, long term, are we going to pay for social care? That's just been pushed back probably now till the autumn when there's a new Prime Minister. And then one other thing I'll just mention, an NHS workforce plan for England, really important. Where are the doctors and nurses and other health staff going to come from over the next 10 years to cope with demand? There are 40,000 nurse vacancies at the moment. A long-awaited interim report was put out at midnight on Sunday for an early embargo, and of course there were other events on Monday with the arrival of the US President. And certainly the draft that came out, had, had some things removed from its previous version.
0: And in terms of the implications of these green papers and plans not being published, does it matter or is it actually quite good that politicians aren't doing as much meddling as, as they have done in, in, under previous administrations? I mean, teachers, for instance, used to complain a great deal under New Labour that they seem to be getting a new directive and policy every week.
2: Well, on NHS NHS workforce, there is a shortage in all areas and we know that demand growth is going to continue with the ageing population, more people with complex conditions, there are fewer GPs per head. It's got to start sometime. And, OK, the final report's out in the autumn, but that's all going to be linked to the spending review, how much money will there be for training. I think the longer these things are put off, the worse it could get long-term. And social care, we all know what happened in the last election, that was promised as a green paper after uh, the election campaign. Nothing has been forthcoming. It's a really important issue.
0: Just explain to our readers and listeners what is happening in terms of the social care crisis. We hear about this a lot, but does this mean that people aren't getting the care they need? Or they're getting sort of humiliating short-term visits or what's happening on the ground?
2: Well, a couple of BBC Panorama programmes in the last couple of weeks have highlighted the real cash squeeze for local authorities who have to provide social care, in this case in Somerset, where they opened the doors to the BBC, my colleague Alison Holt, where she could see. Really difficult decisions being made about care being cut back. And this is because of the shortage of money to local authorities to pay for social care. So there's the state funding element. Then there's the self pay argument and a long running issue about whether people need to sell their assets to pay for their long term social care. Hugely important. We've had Paul Johnson of the IFS saying how important this is. This has got to be resolved. And the policy logjam has to be unpicked here because long term, there's going to have to be, in his view and the view, views of many others, a new form of social insurance levy or tax or, or something that, that picks up uh, in future years.
0: Alex, this may all be true, but isn't it easier for politicians to hope that the next lot will come along and sort it out, as they have done for the past two decades?
2: Uh, on social
1: care, there there's a real problem. And part of it, I think, stems from... Uh, the, Theresa May's lack of confidence from 2017 particularly where she came up the plan and her advisor came up the plan endorsed it it was very unpopular um, the Centre for Policy Studies has recently done a paper on social care arguing that we should try and model it on the state pension where the state pays basically for a basic level of care for everyone you know to wash and clothes and house you but if you want additional top-ups and most care homes do offer that and there is a range of care homes you know you could you would then top that up privately but that requires a sort of level of intellectual self-confidence to say, well, what is the model that I am basing social care on? And I think ever since she lost that majority, and partly because of the distractions of Brexit, this government hasn't had that intellectual confidence to say, my solution is this model works. You know, I'm going to take this model from the NHS or I'm going to take this model from, from the state pension, create it, put a bit more money in if necessary, change some of the structures and go with it. That's quite a big, bold thing to do. And to be fair as well, with the lack of majority, there seems to be a real timidity and a fear that if you get it wrong, could it bring the whole government crashing down? But the problem is that you've now reached a point where people say, what's this government done? What has its purpose been? And I think the new leader is going to have to have some big, exciting ideas other than Brexit to keep the show on the road, because otherwise people will just feel this government is in office but not in power, in that terrible phrase, and will eventually fall quite quickly perhaps.
0: When you say quite, quite quickly, are you expecting the next Prime Minister to be a sort of a gap year job, really, rather than anything longer term? I
1: think it depends on the attitude that that Prime Minister takes. I think in this, the current circumstance of the Conservative Party, where it's been swall, it's sort of uh, becalmed for so long and the arguments sort of below deck have got louder and louder, is you'll be better off saying, here are some big emblematic policies that remind people of why I'm a Conservative. And if you look at David Cameron... He used to be quite good at balancing and saying, well, on the one hand, I'll bring immigration down, but I, you know, I also support uh, 0.7% aid to help other countries develop so we don't have the pressures of immigration in the first place. So you need a leader who's going to be able to try and, and make some big calls and decisions rather than, I think, hoping that you know they can keep putting off those decisions. The hope has to be that the Tory party is in a state where it, it will follow a leader who makes those big judgment calls. But if they don't, there's a real risk, I think, that they... they blunder around and then just sort of collapse because of no one is prepared to actually stand with the government at a crucial moment.
0: Hugh let's have a look at the the leadership contenders a lot of the focus is on whether they've got the attributes to deliver Brexit but who's the best policy wonk out of all of them and who's most likely to actually get what they want to do done?
2: Well, I've seen two at first hand as health editor, Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock. It's hard to comment on some of the others because to be fair to them, they wouldn't necessarily be speaking in huge detail about some of these issues. Matt Hancock has been quite honest in saying that he's, Pushed very hard for a social care green paper because it's part of his department now. It was was taken in health and social care, but he couldn't get sign-off across government, which was quite an admission that essentially the treasury and number ten wouldn't agree to some of the ideas that were in there, like a new social care levy modelled on the nest pension scheme. The uh, you're in unless you opt out, or uh, higher national insurance for the over forties. Really big important decisions. They couldn't go any further. So. I suppose it just just to pick up what we were talking about earlier, is the political system capable of making these difficult, really important decisions which involve higher taxation or or higher payments to look after future social care? Maybe maybe not. Now, Jeremy Hunt, when he took over uh, the health and social care brief, you'll remember he turned down another job in Cabinet and said, I want to tackle the social care issue. He did move forward with it quite quickly and then was moved to the Foreign Office. So they, they both showed willing, but they, they haven't quite delivered. But but to be fair to them, it is a bigger issue for the whole cabinet. So where were, where were other members of the cabinet? What were they saying? And maybe for all uh, the hustings in the next few weeks, political correspondents and others could start asking questions to each of these candidates. What are you going to do about social care uh, in the long term?
0: Alex, what's your view on who's the most effective would-be prime minister out of a rather large bunch?
1: Well, obviously, uh, the Centre for Policy Studies was founded by Margaret Thatcher, so we tend to come from the right. But we are not endorsing any particular candidate. I think all the candidates have good points and bad points. So I'm only going to, you know, I, I don't think we can say from our perspective or uh, who would be best that the, the candidates who seem to be cutting through the most. And I can report instead of what what's going on out there. You know, there does seem to be a move towards. The idea that there could be an election soon and therefore you need someone who can who can face the voters, which obviously helps probably Boris more than others. But whether or not that's a a justified belief or not, you know, we may find out in the next six months or sooner rather than later.
0: Thank you, Alex and Hugh. Next, listen to this scene from the anti-Trump protest earlier this week. Lionel Shriver writes in this week's issue that we're now in a world of impotent hyperbole where, too often, Brexiteers are imperialists, Trump supporters are Nazi scum, so much so that the words have lost their meaning. So is she on to something? Or does political discourse, especially in an increasingly polarised world, require forceful language? I'm joined by talk radio host Julia Hartley-Brewer and Jonathan Liss, Deputy Director of campaign group British Influence. So last week, Julia, you were no-platformed by the Royal College of GPs. What had you done to offend doctors?
3: I sent a darn stupid tweet uh, three years ago, which I hadn't actually remembered any details of. And annoyingly, the conversation, which it was a part of, uh, has some of it since been deleted. Uh, But it was a tweet that someone did the old... uh, what was it, Toby Young has always called it, offence archaeology, to find a tweet. Since I sent, God knows, hundreds of thousands of tweets, I had to go all the way three years back to find one that they didn't like. A bunch of doctors said that I had defended Enoch Powell, despite the fact a tweet began with the words, I'm not defending Powell, which I thought was fairly uh, obvious, and decided that I was an unsuitable person uh, to be allowed to speak at the Euro College of GPs, despite the fact that I was invited as a panellist on a question time-style panel to give alternative points of view. So they said you were a fascist and you couldn't speak. One doctor has referred to me as a defender of fascism, otherwise just generally just racist, and it was absolutely unacceptable for me to be speaking at this, uh, this conference, so I've been no platform. Just explain quickly what your view on Enoch Powell is for anyone who's sitting there saying, but she is a fascist thanks for that um, <laughs> um, do you know what I've got to be honest I, I don't have strong views on Enoch Powell I try not to have strong views on things I don't know very much about Enoch Powell uh, spoke in the year that I uh, this famous speech the year that I was born and and, uh, in and fact, you just, weren't paying attention I funnily enough wasn't paying that much attention he died when I just started out in political journalism and uh, and hadn't paid that much attention then of course I, I know about him and know the speech and in fact I had actually relatively recently before I wrote that tweet had actually read the rivers of blood speech for the very first time because someone had pointed out to me that actually a lot of the things that are attributed to Enoch Powell in that speech aren't actually things that he said or he attributed to other people. So I was interested to actually read the text myself instead of what people have said about the text. And and I just entered into a conversation and I one of the things I, I said, I said but I didn't think that Enoch Powell was a racist, partly that because people like Tony Blair had praised him when he died, uh, but also because it, in simple definition of racism, he didn't believe that you know, white people, his own race was superior uh, to other races. And that wasn't, wasn't actually the fundamental aspect of the speech and when i when i tweeted and again foolishly worded looking back in retrospect my tweet about nepal it was it was only what i intended to mean ...hence saying I'm not defending power... ...was that I couldn't see what he'd got wrong... ...and what I meant was in terms of his predictions... ...in terms of his predictions about mass immigration... ...and the numbers... ...in fact his predictions on numbers... ...were actually on the low side to what actually happened... Uh, ...but also the fact that he predicted... ...there would be race, t- racial tensions... ...there would be community breakdown and the like... ...and I think a lot of that has been borne out to be true... ...perhaps not with the groups that he expected... Uh, ...in terms of uh, the numbers of people... ...coming from different parts of the world... But I thought I thought I was having a nuanced conversation about a particular aspect of the speech. I certainly wasn't sitting there going, oh yeah, I agree with you, not perhaps Absolutely, he was right. Couldn't be further from the truth. I wasn't. A, I wasn't passing a moral judgment. I'd already said I'm not defending Val. I was passing uh, a, a passing comment on the accuracy of his predictions, which I didn't think was particularly dangerous territory to enter. So you were quite surprised by the reaction, and in line, or I shouldn't should, have been. You shouldn't have been. Why shouldn't you? I shouldn't have been because uh, I think in this day and age, I don't think you're allowed to say anything with any nuance or express anything that might be outside what's deemed acceptable speech.
0: Well, let's look at at that idea because in Lionel's piece in this week's magazine, she talks about the hyperbole that's everywhere in today's political language. Jonathan, would you agree that we've we've obviously lost a lot of nuance, partly because we're communicating in a very small number of characters on Twitter, uh, but also that there is this hyperbole that means that everyone has to be a, a fascist or a racist rather than someone with a different point of view or an attempt to point out an inaccuracy even, in, as in Julia's case.
4: I do think there is a problem because on the one hand, we are in extraordinary times. I think that we can all agree on that. Uh, what is happening in political movements across Western Europe and the United States, um, Trump, Brexit, You know what's happening in the populist government in Italy, these are Interesting phenomena which were not around 20 years ago. We need to find a new register of language to communicate that. And some of the things that are being said and done in the United States are also extraordinary in our lifetimes. And so I think that we reach for different language, but where I agree with Shriver is that we don't necessarily leave that much in the pot, so to speak. And because if we go, you know, to turn up to 11 at this point, what do you do when you actually do have someone who is actively genocidal, which I don't believe Trump is? But I think that that is... Um, I think that it's not necessarily as serious a problem as it might be, because for talented craftspeople of the English language, we can always express how serious things are. But there does have to be some kind of differentiation in the way that we use to describe things. So
0: you've called Donald Trump a fascist child. So yeah. where, as, as, a, as a wordsmith, do you go from that if he does something worse?
4: I haven't called him a Nazi genocidal maniac, for example. I've said that he evokes... M- the- might
3: you in the future?
4: If he were to start gassing people, I might well. Look, he he evokes the language of Nazism in quite a plain way when he describes infestations of people, invaders. When he talks about the true enemies of the people in the media, that is is straight out of the Nazi playbook. That is literally from... Wilkischer Beobacht or whatever that newspaper was when it had the enemies of the people. So if you are going to talk like a Nazi, then that deserves to be called out. It's not saying you are a Nazi, you are going to emulate Hitler exactly. But the problem with fascism, the word fascism is, if we use it for everyone, then it becomes meaningless. But if we don't use it to identify things that are fascist, then it also becomes meaningless.
0: Do you find yourself attempting to dial down your language when you're reacting to people online who you find repugnant, but who Aren't in your view fascists, for instance? Do you find sometimes that your initial reaction is that you want to say this person is a Nazi, and actually you have to row back from that a bit?
4: As the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, I'm actually quite careful about using the word Nazi, um, whereas other people are maybe less so. So I don't really go for Nazi, except you know when when Trump was doing saying those Nazi-like things. I said that's a Nazi-like thing to say. But, for example, I loathe Boris Johnson, but I've never called him a fascist, um, to my recollection. I don't think he's behaved in, a, in an explicitly fascist way. An um, explicitly fascist way? Well, I mean, there are obviously, you know, hanging out with Steve Bannon, for example. Hanging um, out so with So you're saying you now? don't
0: think he's behaved in an explicitly fascist way? I don't way, think you...
4: he's behaved okay. in an explicitly fascist way. I think that he has... and um, There are elements of his behaviour that evoke aspects of... Of that 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 style of discourse, you know, Theresa May when she was talking about uh, citizens of nowhere, etc. In that in those early um, days of 2016, that was you know in some of her rhetoric about immigration, um, that could be called into question. But I would not call her a fascist. So there are there are there are certainly modulations.
0: Julia, in your piece that you wrote for us on Coffee House about being no platformed, you pointed out that a number of the doctors who were calling for their Royal College of GPs not to host you after all were very left-wing Labour supporters. Do you think this is a particular problem of the left?
3: I think largely. I think 90% plus it is a problem with the left. There's a lot of name-calling and some parts of the right, but in terms of mainstream politicians, people who would consider themselves to be even somewhere in the middle in British politics and perhaps in American politics as well, the, the urge to name-call seems to be far, far greater. I, I know very, very few, for instance, Brexiteers and in Conservatives who go around just routinely calling people names, whether fascists or any left-wing equivalent, but I, I could you know, name dozens and dozens of people who, who I know on the left who I think are otherwise pretty sane and normal people who on certain issues suddenly just resort to name-calling. What about Traitors?
4: Why? That's, quite, that's a word more of the right than of the left, isn't it?
3: Traitors, I think, has been used, uh, yes, about certain people. But, uh, f- I mean, for me, certainly, I think there's only one person I've referred to as a traitor, and that's Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, where that was when he was uh, actually uh, g- going to go the EU and deliberately undermining his own government's policy as a Minister of the Crown. And I thought that was really very, very questionable uh, as a, as a, as a thing for a senior ve- Office of State that to that do. That is still a very, very strong word to it use. It is. And I think I, used, I think I said he should be tried for treason. I think that's where I went. Um, still quite strong. Still still pretty strong, yeah, but... Um, but uh, Again, there's a, there's a difference, I think, very big difference between using language like that and shouting fascist at everyone with whom you disagree. And, and something I'd like to take Jonathan up on, and you say you know, you, you're very careful about using some of those words, but I think one of the reasons why people jump to the words like fascist and like Nazi is because they've used up everything they've got with racist. They've used up everything they've got with misogynist, with sexist, and, and or homophobe. And once you've used those up and you've called everybody who doesn't agree to a particularly very narrow politically correct line of of thought on on, on those subjects well then you have to then go up to fascist and Nazi and what I'm really wondering is where we go after that What, what what is the next word that we're just going to throw around at everybody who says something that we don't like?
4: But I don't think we are throwing the word around. I think that's where I disagree with you. I think that you can call some people racist if they, are, if they behave in a racist way or if they do racist things. Does it make it fascist? I mean, in one, in, on the one hand, we're talking about rhetoric. On the other hand, we're talking about specific actions. And maybe that is where there's confusion because we can't all agree, perhaps, on what a fascist is. Um, I can't w-
3: we? You see, I think most people can.
4: Well, look, I mean, I I think that we can probably agree, maybe, I don't know, but calling the media the true enemies of the people... That is, for me, that's that's a fascist-like thing to say. That that emulates that emulates I, fascism. I
3: think I think just because, uh, fascists in the past, the twentieth century fascists with whom Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, compared Donald Trump, have done something, doesn't necessarily mean that something is fascistic. So there'll be lots of other sort of those awful awful phrase, those strong men leaders that Donald Trump seems to admire so much, who will also have done similar things. But I don't necessarily think that fascist. I don't think it's a helpful description. I don't think it's a useful description. I don't think it's a meaningful description a lot of the time. Do Jonathan, how much of an influence does social
0: media have here?
4: Undoubtedly uh, a great influence because, of course, we are competing for attention anyone who has a sizeable profile on on twitter for example twitter is probably the worst culprit because you do have a limited amount of space to make an impact and particularly for journalists you know it sort of often feels like some kind of like journalist club where you're trying to outdo other people Uh, and that does it things do escalate quickly certainly and there is a kind of a debasement of language that comes with that discourse i still would would choose to have it rather than not have it because it democratizes discourse as well because allows allows people to communicate on the same level, which you weren't able to do 20 years ago. But of course, that does, it does feed into a kind of a frenzy.
3: So, Julia, do you think people need to calm down? I absolutely, think people need to calm down. I think particularly the need to accept that people may have a different view from you, whether it's left or right, Brexit, Remain, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, but they, their view may be nuanced, it may not be as black and white as you think, and someone may hold a view that you think is bad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is a bad person. I think, I think that's where we've got, we sort of go, sort of jumping from the extreme, like, say someone, I'm not for instance, you know, I'm a Brexiteer who, who's massively anti-Trump but obviously I must be a Trump supporter because I'm a Brexiteer or I'm a Brexiteer therefore I must be right wing or therefore I must support this or that and and these 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 accusations and then you get the sort of the Labour left never kissed a Tory, all Tories are scum they're, they're bad people, they're evil people they're racist, you get yeah, and I, it, mean, I, found things, that I found these, that
4: myself I used to work for a Tory in Brussels and uh, I had left wing people who didn't want to talk to me even though I am of the left myself so I have absolutely experienced I think we just need to try and understand each other more ultimately. Just
3: don't necessarily assume because Someone says something you don't like, that it means they're a very bad person and you should shout names at them. Thanks, Julia and Jonathan. And last.
2: All my tell us all modern women are jealous. Which of your magical ones got you Gustav and Walter and Franz? Recognize this song? first one she married was Mahler, whose buddies all knew him as Gustav, and each time he saw her, he'd holler. Ach, that is the Fräulein I must have.
0: When reading Alma Mahler's obituary, musician Tom Lehrer called it the juiciest, spiciest, raciest he'd ever come across. She's said to have been lovers with most of the top creative men in Europe at the time. But how much is myth and how much is true in this story? I'm joined by Kate Haste, whose recent biography on Alma, Passionate Spirit, is reviewed in this week's issue. So, Kate, who was Alma Mahler, and why does she matter?
5: Alma Mahler was born in at the end of the 19th century, founder secler in Vienna at, at its one of its most vibrant times periods. She was, in my view, a modern woman who was living out of her time. She had ambitions from very early on to be a composer which was completely remarkable and for a woman at that time. There were no models, there were no examples for her to follow. She was the daughter of an artist, so she felt that she saw... but well, she thought her father was a genius, and she felt that, uh, that uh, she was part of that sort of artistic, bohemian community at the end of the 19th century, where the, the, the values that mattered were those of art and uh, literature and scholarship. Uh, her father died when she was young, which was a tragedy, and her stepfather, with Gustav Klimt, started the Viennese Session Movement, which was, it, it was started in their front room, in her drawing room. So from the time she was 16 or 17, she was at the hub of the artistic, cultural and sophisticated artistic life.
0: And, and even and, extending into her personal life, because she seems to have been married to... Almost everyone influential and, and interesting in Vienna.
5: She was basically her first love was um, Gustav Klimt, who reciprocated it, but he was an older man and a bit of a roué, And she, it, so that it was her, first, he was her first kiss. Then Alexander Zemlinsky, who was a very an up and coming composer who taught Schoenberg, in fact, as well, and was and wrote operas, became also. Again, not her actual lover, but uh, the person with whom she discovered, actually, she discovered her sort of burgeoning sexuality at the age of 18 and 19. So then then she met Marla, and they met in November and married in March. It was a whirlwind, uh, whirlwind affair. She fell in love with him. She was beguiled by him. Yeah. But she assumed... By that time, she, under Zemlinski, Zemlinsky had been her teacher and had been uh, teaching her composition, which was the one thing she wanted to be. By that time, she decided the only thing she wanted to be was a composer. She had a piano teacher, but she needed to develop her technique. And she was, she was a combination of extraordinary sense of entitlement through her father, but also self-doubt of sort of modesty and praising herself... And I think that, uh, and that comes over, I find that very intriguing. It's a woman who's for opening herself to the world around her, opening herself to love and opening herself to uh, all the experiences available in this extraordinarily rich city.
0: And you do take a, I mean, you say you're intrigued by her character and you seem to be more sympathetic towards her than others who've written about her in the past
5: I think so and that's partly because the, most of the biographies which have been about her have been based on her autobiography which she wrote when she was in her late 70s early 80s and she elides a lot of things it was ghost written of course they should have checked everything but I mean you know there's a lot of inaccuracies in it I've hardly used it at all and the woman who comes over in that frankly I didn't find to be a terrifically likable person
0: so that and that's in her, her own ghost written in her own account. ghost account
5: <coughs> in her own ghost written version, which is, comes out in 1959. Right. They've tended to base it on her, whereas what I've done is based mine on, on her diaries, which she's, which she wrote extensively, happily, for biographers. Um, from the age of about 17, she wrote almost every day, right the way through till 1945. And these present particularly a picture of this woman, young woman in Vienna open to the world, like a sort of flower to the sun, to everything going around her. She read voraciously. She went to the opera two or three times a week. She went to concerts. She was obsessed about opera, obsessed about music. Her ideas about love and about emotion and about passion actually also came from living in swimming, really, in that environment of high passion. And so when she... She was very demanding about what she wanted, whether she could love enough and whether the love she received from others was sufficiently passionate. So that was an extraordinary element of her. And in a way, her life was lived on the basis of love, as well as on the basis of the fact that, you see, when she, in order to marry Marla, Marla sent her a letter in which he said that basically there's only room for one composer in our marriage, and that composer is me.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about how successful she ended up being You say that she was a woman who living before her time, so does that mean that her career could now have been
5: stratospheric? Probably not. I, how do we know she, she was composed the leader which uh, the songs which remain were all almost without exception, with few exceptions, composed between the age of eighteen and twenty one
0: What did she do when she stopped composing?
5: She married Marla and she had to take the decision which she did rather speedily. To, which was to whether to abandon the love she had for Marla And she opted for love and sacrificed the songs and regretted that sacrifice for the rest of her life. And she, she wandered around, carry, she said, I wandered around with my songs, carried them around in, like in a coffin, which I had hardly dared look into because she knew that if music always rescued her. She had the most terrible tragedies in her life. Three of her four children died. But, and and it was all and whenever things went wrong music was always the salvation and indeed during her marriage to Marla, if she had been able to she would have been much happier if she could have been able to fulfill herself and 10 years into the marriage when she had an affair with gropius she was walking home with her daughter and she heard her songs being played on the piano and she was quite alarmed and walked in and and Gustave rushed out saying I've made a terrible mistake this is awful these songs are absolutely wonderful we must have them published we must have the greatest sopranos to sing them and her reaction was a mixture of bewilderment and anger understandably and they did they worked on them and from then on their relationship improved enormously because he was appreciating her music and appreciating her and therefore, she was here also seeing him in a much more rounded way because it was sort of more reciprocal. And shortly afterwards, he did actually get ill. And within a year, he died. And so, and she never really took up music. And I think it's quite difficult to, to know why. But I wonder just whether life had taken over. She'd had two children, one of whom had died. Um, she'd lived with this person who, ultimately, she believed was a genius. And art is unceasing practice, and I think having not, having played the piano intermittently, having not composed because she was honourable and abided by that um, decision, to then pick it up—it's all some. I think perhaps something inside had dwindled, you know, create the creative spirit had just shriveled inside her, and to then revive it when she was in a state of huge grief about great grief about. About Marla, even though in fact she was still in, in contact with, um, with Walter Gropius, with whom she'd had an affair, but that didn't really take off after that it didn't take off it that also faded after Marla died, and she had a sequence of other friends, acquaintances, intimates of one sort or the other
0: thanks Kate and that's it for this week. If you enjoyed hearing from one of the authors who we review do tune in to Sam Reith's Weekly Spectator Books podcast, where he interviews authors from Lee Child to Jim al You can find the latest episodes on Spectator Radio. And if you like this podcast, you can not only subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store, you can also email us. Just send us a message on what you think of it, or any tips or tricks or views on the, the presenters and guests, such as Lisa Hardman, someone who's sparked a few complaints this week. Terrible woman. Just email podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.